0: While a guy like Ben really doesn't need any introduction, I guess I should say a few things about his accomplishments. I think at this point he's written about 23 books, although it's possible by the time this podcast comes out he'll have a 24th written. He's a New York Times bestseller for multiple books, and a few of his books have been made into movies. Uh, Maybe his most famous was the movie 21, which was taken from the book Bringing Down the House, And of course, the movie, The Social Network, taken from his book, The Accidental Billionaires, the founding of Facebook. Those are not his only two movies, but they're the ones I guess I'll mention. He was a writer on last season of Billionaires. Um, He recently wrote the book, The Mechanic, which was actually serialized in the Boston Globe. And in fact, that's being turned into a movie. Ben's working on the screenplay and it was bought by Steven Spielberg's uh, company. That's really pretty good. I've known Ben pretty much my whole life. To be honest, the first time I met him was, well, right when they brought me home after I was born. You know, he is actually my brother. Okay, here it is, episode number one. And, uh, of course, for episode one, I had to get Ben Mesrich, mostly because Michael Lewis wouldn't agree to do it and was about the only guy who would. Now, of course, I'm just kidding. I titled this episode, My Inspiration, The Magical Life of Ben Mesrich. He really is my inspiration, and the reason I say that is... He succeeded in a field where there was no reason that he had to succeed. I think about our career of surgery and we all know that we're going to work hard in surgery and we're going to train really hard, but we also know that at the end, we're probably going to be able to do it. I think writing is a totally different career. And I had the chance this past year to spend some time uh, with pioneers in the field of transplant. And what I learned about the pioneers is that on top of their incredible efforts and hard work. They just always knew they were going to succeed. Some people said they had the courage to fail, but I think it was something different. I think they really had the courage to succeed. They just knew no matter what that it was going to work out. I think perhaps Ben has that, but
1: we're going to talk to him today and see if any of that is true. All right,
0: Ben, welcome to the
1: set. <laughs> hey, thanks. This is this is very cool, and congratulations on your inaugural Podcast. This could, you know, this could end up being the only podcast, depending on how I- <laughs> it's going to be a one and <laughs> done situation. I'm sure, but no, no, it's going to be, it's going to be great. It's going to be, it's going to be awesome.
0: I hope so. Hey, I thought it would be fun to talk to you a little bit um, to talk about how we grew up, how you ended up choosing the field of writing, and maybe contrast it with me because, of course, we grew up in the same household and uh, we went on pretty different paths. So. You can tell me a little about where you grew up, which I know, but also when you started to get interested in a career in writing.
1: Sure. Well, uh, we grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, which was, you know, a pretty little preppy town (laughs) in the middle of New Jersey. Um, And, uh, you know, our dad is a scientist, radiologist, but originally he was an inventor, an electrical engineer, who then went into medicine later in life and became a very accomplished radiologist. And... um, our mom was always interested in sort of uh, all sorts of things and is a, has a law degree, um, practiced a little bit. But, um, you know, education and intelligence and all that kind of thing is always very important in our household. And uh, books were always kind of front and center. I think from my earliest memories, you know, it all revolved around books. And I, I tell this story in a lot of places. But as a kid, I was obsessed with television. You know, I loved Really bad TV, um, and uh, and uh, our parents made a rule that we had to read two books a week before we were allowed to watch TV. And so, from a very early age, we all became very good readers. You know, could read very quickly mainly because we wanted to watch TV. And so, I think from an early age, I started to realize that I wanted to be a writer. I think for me, it started around age twelve, um, where I tried to write a book. I think I wrote my first book at age twelve and then and then pretty much continued to try and do that and back then it was like on a typewriter and and uh, it was a different kind of experience. but by the time I graduated from high school, I knew this is what I wanted to do. this is all I wanted to do. I wanted to be a writer um and so in college, my goal was to to just write and so i i studied as little as possible, <laughs> and I wrote as much as possible, so that by the time I graduated from college, I was, I was well on my way to sort of trying to find out how one gets into this career, um, because I'm like, oh, medicine or whatever, there's no application, um, and we didn't really have any connections in this world at all, so it was, uh, it was a tricky learning process, for sure.
0: Did you think, like, taking classes on writing was that useful, or was it really just going for it and seeing what happened?
1: You know, I don't think it was ever really that useful. I'm not really a, a, against the classes. I think you know, classes give you time to write and time to read, which I think is really important. Um, but other than sort of the basic rules of writing, I think most of this stuff comes from yourself. So I didn't really take writing courses so much as just wrote, uh, read and wrote and wrote and wrote. And some people, you know, work on one book until it's ready. But what I did is when I graduated from college, I locked myself in an apartment in Boston and then I wrote nine novels in twelve months. So I literally wrote, you know, hundreds of thousands of pages. And then I, I would send them out. I'd go to the mail, the post office once a week and mail off a dozen manuscripts and get a dozen rejections and then get another dozen rejections. And I got about hundred and ninety rejection slips in the year I graduated from college. And, uh, and you know, the, the books I wrote were crap. Like those nine novels were not very readable. They were all like, you know, written like Breddy Stinellis or Jay McInerney because I wanted to be those guys. This was, you know, the 90s, but I was obsessed with these 80s writers. So they all took place in bars in New York City and they all these deep, dark stories, you know, involving all of that stuff. And so nobody wanted to buy those. So I just kept writing and kept writing and kept writing.
0: Did you did you
1: think it was going to work out? Like why why would you have thought? Yeah. So I I think I'm I'm somewhat delusional and I really really believed from the very first moment that I was going to be a, a, a big time writer. And I never wanted to write one book. That was never my goal. You know, a lot of people say they have a novel in them or whatever. My goal was to be a writer, was to be you know, Brady Cinellis or Jay McInerney or or Michael Crichton, I was obsessed with Michael Crichton, is to become one of these guys who writes a book every year and, and, you know, has the biggest movie and the biggest television show and the biggest, I always had these huge, huge uh, goals, and I was completely deluded in believing that everything I was writing was great. Um, And (laughs) I tell young writers that, you know, there's different ways to approach this, and some people just hate what they do, and they work so hard, and they write, and they write, and they hate every page they write. But for me, I write a page and I just think it's brilliant, and I think, oh, this is going to be the biggest thing I've ever written. And it not—it isn't always, you know. You don't always hit home run. Um, but but I was always a real believer in in my ability to do this, even when there was no real reason to believe. There was no evidence. <laughs> all the evidence contrary, you know. I was getting rejection after rejection after rejection. But I really, really, and truly knew that this was what I was was meant to do.
0: You know, it's funny, I, I listen to what you're saying, like, I've written one book, and I'll, maybe we'll talk about that later. But I had these moments when I was writing where like at night, I'd be like, I'm a fraud, this is horrible, you know, and I've read about so many other authors that will have
1: those moments. And you just never feel that way. You feel like never, never. And it's funny, because I was roommates with Scott Stossel, who was, a, you know, very successful writer, I ran the Atlantic Monthly, of the Atlantic Monthly, wrote a wonderful book, Um, on anxiety, which is brilliant. And he is the exact opposite of me. You know, he just beats on himself all day long and spends hours and hours and hours researching and years and years writing a book. And for me, it was never like that. It was always, you know, not easy. There's nothing easy about writing, as you know. Uh, but, But for me, at the end of each day, I always loved what I had written. There was never a moment in my entire career at this point where I've done a day of writing and looked at it and thought that that was crap. I've always come out at the end of the day and said, wow, that's great.
0: Can I ask you, how do you, because in in my field, you know, we get criticized a lot, right? Certainly the trainees listening to this know all about criticism, but we're constantly talking about the mistakes we made or things we wish we did different. How do you internalize what, on the one hand, you feel like this is great. And then you had, you said 190 rejections. And I know you've certainly been criticized in reviews
1: and such like how do you deal
0: with that is that are they wrong are they
1: criticized? what are you talking about no (laughs) Uh, janet maslin has has attacked every single one of my books from for 20 solid books i think my very first review in the new york times i was 20 something years old and i got a full page review in the new york times And the review started, this is a bad book. (laughs) Yeah, I've definitely gotten
0: negative reviews. I'm just picturing, like, I do an operation and someone just says, this was a
1: bad surgery. (laughs) Right, right. And you would think that you would take that to heart. But the reality for me is I always thought that they were wrong. Um, And I think everyone's welcome to their opinion, you know. And what Mm. I write, the way I write has been very controversial over the years because I was doing Nonfiction in a way that nobody else was doing nonfiction, you know, I was taking a true story but writing it like a thriller and mm-hmm. and uh, and so a lot of reviewers at places like The New York Times had issues with the way I was writing nonfiction um but I always believed that it was a very viable and and unique but a a really good way to write a true story and so yeah, you know you read all of the reviews, the bad and the good ones, um but for the most part, you know you disagree with them. <laughs> and I think, mm-hmm. you know, we, we come from a family where, you know, when you're in the New York Times and it's a horrible review, like our Aunt Harriet will call, hey, look at this great review. They got your name right, you know? Right, so it's Like right. In the New York Times, it's important. And the fact that you're being trashed by Janet Maslin in the Times is in itself um, a testament to what you're doing is is something big. Um, so yeah, it's never really bugged me that much. and I And I always knew there would be a differing Opinion. I'd much rather get a bad review than no review. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, when my books come come out on the scene, uh, the worst thing in the world is if they're not noticed. So I'd much, much rather get a dozen really horrific reviews because I can say, "Oh, they they don't get it. They don't understand it, but they feel the need to review it." And also, not everyone is going to be a home run, and I recognize that. But every time I write a book, I feel like it's got the potential of being a huge movie or a huge television show. Um, and so the fact that, you know, some reviewer somewhere reads it and, and takes issue with this or with that doesn't change the bigness of it or the possibility that this story could reach a very large audience. You know, I will say that had my career gone to a point where I didn't, you know, make the New York Times bestseller list and didn't get a movie made out of it, I don't think it would change that much about how I viewed my books. I still really, really and truly believe that what I'm doing is entertaining and it entertains people. And I think there are people out there who will always get that out of it, regardless of what the reviewers think.
0: Did you, early in your career, before you made it, did you
1: ever almost throw the towel in? Were you close? Uh, no, I, I didn't. I, I think uh, I think our dad almost threw my towel in. And- <laughs> I think he did, yeah. <laughs> I remember, you know, coming home from, from Harvard and announcing that I wanted to be a writer. It didn't go over that well. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but to their credit, our parents, you know, Said, okay, I'm not going to let you starve. I'm going to give you one year, and if in one year you don't come out with some sort of, um, you know, proof that this is a possibility, then you're gonna you're gonna have to go to graduate school or or you're gonna have to get a real job. That's why that year after college, I wrote nine novels. It was out of desperation. I really locked myself up. I was writing forty pages a day every day, um, and so even though I was getting rejection, 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 I think I was moving in that direction. And by the end of that one year out of college, I had gotten an agent. And within three years out of the college, I had sold my first book. Um, so really, I sold the first book at 24 or 25 years old, which was in this career is very hard to do, as, as, as anybody who's in writing knows. But it was because I didn't have a, a choice in my mind. This was what I have always wanted to do, what I always wanted to be. There was never a moment where I thought I couldn't do this or, or this isn't going to work out. Um, Over the years, of course, these are careers that there are ups and downs. You have one year where you have this huge bestseller or a movie or something like that. And then you have another year where, you know, for whatever reason, you don't hit a home run. Um, And so there can always be sort of ebbs. And I even look at Michael Crichton's career. And, you know, this is a guy who was one of the greatest ever. But he had multiple years where he didn't have any books, you know, successful books. I mean, he was a doc, of course, right? fall our- back on medicine, you know? Yeah. Um, right. I, I
0: remember reading the story about him. You probably know it better than me. But he was in medical school and he realized he wanted to be a writer and he kept trying to quit. And the dean kept saying, just one more year, it's going to be you're going to like it next year. And he kind of got him through med school mm-hmm. and finished his MD, but then switched to writing
1: yeah I mean he was always sort of meant to do I think what he did but but for me, there was nothing else. you know there was no other thing that that would have captivated me and and had I ended up a lawyer or something like that, um being a doctor is never in the cards for me i've I've never looked through a microscope and actually seen something <laughs> you know it's always i don't know if it's my eyesight or whatever and the the idea of of helping. I mean, what you do day in and day out is, is incredible to me and I would be running the other direction. So it's it's not something that was ever sort
0: of an <laughs> option for me. You know, it's funny, like, think about it because, like, we obviously grew up under the same roof. And um, I think the things that got me into medical school, one was my obsession with Hawkeye Pierce on MASH. I just loved that character. And then watching dad uh, go through medical school when we were older, I was sort of fascinated by it. But I, I don't... I still in many ways feel like I stumbled into it. And certainly surgery was not on my mind until I started seeing it. And I think what attracted me was this idea that like, could I do it? Could I master it? Which maybe is, do you have that in writing? Like, did you ever think? No,
1: because like, I never doubted I could master it. I knew I. it. The minute I, I read uh, my first sort of, you know, book that I fell in love with. I said, oh, I'm going to do that. And I can uh, do that. There's no reason why I couldn't do that. I mean, I do think you always set out to do the hardest thing. You know, you, you set out to me that unbelievably demanding the training that you went through and then what you still do on a day-to-day basis. I remember multiple times when you would call me, you know, or I would call you in the middle of the night and I'd say, what are you about to do? And you're like, I'm about to do a liver, whatever, surgery. And what are you doing? Oh, I'm in Vegas. <laughs> you know,
0: yeah. it's, it's, I think my yeah. favorite story, Ben, was it was like 10 at night. And I was about to start a kidney transplant and you called me and you asked what I'm doing and I said a kidney transplant. And you're like, oh, that's so funny. I'm the keynote speaker at like the National Kidney Foundation. <laughs> right. Exactly. I can not <laughs> believe
1: it. It's a different pathway, I guess. But you know, for me, you know, the the stories, it's it's I get to write about a different thing every year, which is really awesome. I throw myself into a whole new world. Um, and and I get to tell big stories. And so for me, it's it's always been sort of this has always been the goal, um, and uh, and uh, I don't know. I, I do tell people that you need to be deluded to some degree to make it in these sorts of fields, where the odds are impossible. You know, it's it's impossibly hard to be a successful actor or, or writer or a painter or whatever in the artistic fields. There's no pathway, um, so you really have to delude yourself or get incredibly lucky.
0: Yeah, I mean that's what I think is so fascinating because. I talked about this in the introduction, but I think yes, I've worked really, really hard. But like, I know I'm going to be employed this year, next year, in ten years, unless I lose interest and quit, or I like get drunk and go to work, which I'm not going to do. Like for you, I mean, you've had a ton of success, but nevertheless, your next book could be like your last one, right? And certainly in the beginning, that was definitely the case. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, there's definitely so that never goes away, and I guess that's something separate. Um, I've never worried about whether I could write. The main worry for me is you never know in these careers it's not for the faint of heart because even if you have a huge book that doesn't mean two years from now um you're still going to get paid um and and the problem is is that you know the industry changes around you so you have to especially if you're around for as long as i've been around now you have to be able to roll with it i mean every year something different seems to happen books really hot movies are really hot suddenly there's no movie theaters because there's a pandemic or suddenly people are buying ebooks instead of hardcover books or for whatever reason th- these careers have shifted so much in the past 20 years i mean when i started out in you know in the 90s in the early 90s the big books were medical thrillers and 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 like that um today the big books are all political if there are books at all um, movie theaters are disappearing but suddenly streaming appeared And I think, you know, what's important in these writing careers is to think about yourself as a storyteller, not specifically about a specific uh, medium. So for instance, I was a book writer, but I'm also a person who tells stories that can be made into movies or television shows. I've always looked at my projects as platforms that were much bigger than just a book. And I would never write a book unless I thought it could be a movie. And in fact, for most of my projects, I've sold the movie before I've sold the book. So I write a treatment, you know, a 15-page proposal, sell the movie rights and then go sell the book rights. I write the book while the movie is being developed. Because I see this as sort of a way to insure yourself against the vagaries of of the industry. I'm not just writing a book, I'm attempting to tell a story to as large an audience as I can reach. And so if you look at it that way, it suddenly opens you and takes some of the risk away a little bit. But yeah, you know, it's not the kind of thing where I know you know, five years from now, I'm still going to be getting paid. Um, if I stop writing tomorrow, then that's that's it. Um, so it's it's the kind of thing where you just have to really, you have to really feel like this is what you were meant to do. And, and you're going to keep doing it and keep doing it, keep doing it.
0: Yeah, there's so, there's so many different directions I want to go with this. But let me start with this. I always had figured as I watched your career that you would veer into fully writing screenplays. I realize you're writing one now, which I don't know if you
1: want to talk about. But have you kept writing books? Yeah. So I love writing books. I mean, for me, writing a book every year seems to be something that, you know, really fulfills me in a way that that other, you know, formats don't. I also recently wrote for a television show. I was a, a staff writer and a producer on the show Billions uh, for last season, for season five, um, which was a blast and an incredible experience. And I've written over the years, you know, a couple of things like that here and there, but I am writing my first um, major sort of feature screenplay right now for a major studio. And uh, and it's not that I never wanted to write screenplays before. It's just I've never really had the opportunity that I have now. It is a different form of writing. And for the most part, Hollywood wants to go after people who've written screenplays before, before they'll go after some author to adapt their own book. So even when I sell my books to Hollywood, it's not the kind of thing where they usually say, oh, you should adapt it. Um, because the way the industry works is to get a movie made you need as many A-list elements attached as possible, and so an A-list actor, an A-list director, an A-list screenwriter, and an A-list book writer together, the movie gets made. But when you're missing some of those variables, it gets less and less likely. So usually, it's been easier for me to have them bring in a major screenwriter, and it enhances the chance of it getting made. But right now, I'm actually in an incredible opportunity where I am doing a screenplay uh, adapting uh, my next book. So. Uh, it's really cool and I love doing it, but no, I never wanted to like move to Hollywood and become a screenwriter. I'm just curious if you were starting today, Mm -hmm. you think you started trying to write like for streaming shows or you still? No, um, No, because my experience has been very good in that regard. What's going on now is the streamers are desperate for content and that content can take sort of any form. So yeah, you could go out there and try and write a pilot, but it's incredibly hard to do that. You could go out and try and sell a television show, but really, you have to write on another show first. You have to staff write for a few years. Um, the process to get into the television industry is is difficult, and it's not something that I'm sort of set up to do. So, no. If I were if I were starting out today, I still would probably write, be writing books because, as I said, a book can be a platform to all these other things. Um, I learned a lot working on Billions and how how it works in the writing world. And and honestly, you know, being a, a staff writer on a show is a really hard job, um, very hard job to get. And then once you're there, you work extremely hard. And then you're sort of, you know, move from show to show, you manage to sell your own. While if you're writing books, and you have success at it, you know, you can have a television show, you can have a movie, um, you can, can, you can do all of those things you could do if you went out and became a screenwriter. But you also have this book that comes out every year. But you know, I'm completely sort of privileged in that I've had such success in this career, that it looks easy to me. (laughs) The reality is, Probably just as hard to do it the way I'm doing it as to do it every other way. Uh, but I think um, I think you said to me when you started writing for Billions, it's the first time you actually ever had a
0: boss or had to be somewhere at a certain time.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it really came out of nowhere. I was sitting at home and on Twitter, Brian Koppelman, who who does the show Billions, we'd kind of known each other because he had done the movie um, Rounders, which was you know incredible movie, and I had done the movie Twenty One, and so we had kind of known of each other. But he basically met me on Twitter. And called me up and and was talking about my my latest book was called Bitcoin Billionaires about the Winklevi the Winklevoss twins and he was asking about the movie for that and then he got to talking about billions and he said would you be interested in writing for television and I said you know I've never done it I've never been in a room with other people I'd, I've never sort of worn pants to work or, or had lunch with other people I'm, I'm uh, and so I said yeah let me do it and he's like well can you start tomorrow and literally. Three days later, I was in New York, four or five days a week, in this writers' room, working with a group of young writers and and Brian, and and it was incredible. It was an awesome experience. Loved writing a show. I got to write an episode, episode three of of last season was mine. Um, really fun and and awesome. But you know, I don't think I would join just any show. You know, just be a staff writer on a show because it's it's you know working with other people. It's it's a whole different business than what I do. And when you're a book writer, as you know, you have so much control. It's it's your book um, and, you know, it's your characters and you get to write it how you want to write it. And Maybe it won't do well, maybe it will, but it's all yours. And that's very different. Television is very much a, a compilation of a whole bunch of different people. It was fun, though. I had a blast.
0: I'm curious, a little bit of a shift in gears, but, um, you know, so in my field, in surgery and in all of medicine, this concept of burnout is really hot right now, Um There are a lot of different reasons for it, but people over time get exhausted, get emotionally kind of drained, even depressed, um, you know, and either quit the field, lose their sense of purpose. Is burnout anything? I mean, I imagine in writing, there's a lot of burnout, many for people that just have some success, but can't quite get over the hump. Uh, Is that anything? Do you ever wake up and think, I don't want to do this anymore, or or it just would never cross your mind?
1: No, that would never cross my mind. I mean, there's definitely there's something slightly different. People talk about like something called writer's block, you know, the idea that you just you can't write or whatever. Or And writer's block to me is not like sitting there and staring at a blank page and being unable to fill the page. Writer's block is when you finish a book and then you watch TV for three months. <laughs> and it's because <laughs> and I guess in some respects, you could say, okay, you just got so exhausted from the process that you just don't want to start again right away. Um, and so to that extent, I think there's sort of this mundane little but it's not the kind of thing where I'd ever say, oh, God, I, know, I don't want to write. I don't want to be a writer. For me, this is really, really what I was meant to be and what I love doing. And it's so much fun. Um, and 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 every aspect of it, I just love. I love when you find a story that you know is compelling and incredible and, and you're just so excited about it. I love researching it, diving inside this world you knew nothing about, following the Winklevai around New York or... Hmm. or running around with the MIT blackjack team. I'm hitting Vegas at three in the morning with $100,000 strapped to my waist. I mean, how could that not be fun, right? And then you write this story. And for me, writing is, the, is super fast. I write six to 10 pages every day. Um, I, I write a book in eight weeks or 16 weeks. And then, uh, and then I, I move on to the next story. Uh, although, And then I get to promote the book. I get to go on TV. I mean, it's an incredibly fun career when it works, And then there's the other side when you're struggling when you're getting all that rejection and when you're you know but for me that was a really romantic and fun part of my life as well i mean just just fighting and trying to climb over that wall and facing people turning you down all the time for me that was really fun um and i guess i'm just built that way i love the idea of knowing that everyone is wrong and i'm right and i'm going to prove them wrong um for me that was a a real high of it of, of selling my first book despite everyone telling me it was impossible and then even when a book fails, to me, it's exciting because I know I know that they're wrong. And so then I know the next one is going to blow their mind. And so it's, I don't know, it's it's probably the way I'm built. But for me, every aspect of this career has been incredible. Um, and so the idea of burnout, you know, there are definitely moments when you're like, oh, God, I got to write 10 pages today. when you get close to a deadline and things like that. But most of those things are self-imposed because in my line of work, uh, it was different when i was on the television show but the deadlines are all kind of i come up me and the editor come up with them together and then as you get closer you can just push them back so i don't know there's a lot of as like, i keep using the word delusion but there's a lot of that because it's all it's all kind of structures you put together yourself I, I i i'm sure there are people in this world that definitely have burnout i mean there are writers who just stop writing for me that was never you know that was never going to happen but see, i'm not an artist right i'm not an artist i'm not i'm not trying to do you know, the great American novel each time. I'm not, I'm not, I don't consider myself literary in any way. I consider myself a storyteller, an entertainer. And, you know, I don't think that entertainers burn out the same way that artists do. Um, and so I think that that's kind of a big difference, you know?
0: Right. I mean, I can relate to a lot of what you said there. I think... Well, like when you finished the book,
1: did it make not you not want to write for a while?
0: So I've written one book and. It was incredible. I felt so much elation through the whole process. It was, I mean, it was great having you to help me, but I think I found it so exciting. The writing was amazing. I had a great agent and a great editor. I didn't—I couldn't wait to get out of bed to write. I, I just wanted to write all day. I even didn't mind the editing. The only part I didn't like was the copy edit, which is that very end yeah. of it. But so I love the process. It's a little scary when it, when you put it out there because like these people are, it's very you're very vulnerable
1: right like well especially you coming from medicine where you know you're not sort of being judged all the time I assume or maybe you are I don't know
0: you're Being judged, but it's it's not as subjective it's more objective I feel like uh you know, either your patient did well or they didn't they got a complication or they didn't right like I right. it's not much like I just don't like the way the way he writes like no one's like I just don't like the way he operates you know I, right and it's public right I mean they It's not like I'm operating in front of, in an arena, although we should try that,
1: but. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I get, I get what you're saying. And it's definitely a different sort of, different situation. When you put out a book, it's very public. And the more, the more successful it is, the more public it becomes. Um, But, you know, you have to sort of enjoy that part of it, I think. I think that's a big part of it, but Yeah, I don't know. I I just don't I just don't see this sort of for me anyways ever feeling like, oh, I I don't want to write another book. There are times when I can't find another story where you're like, oh, we need a really big story. And I've kind of written myself into a corner. I mean, I've written about very big things, you know, Facebook, the social network. You know, how do you top that? Right? MIT kids who took Vegas for millions. That's almost the perfect sentence to me. It's like the perfect elevator pitch. Wooly Mammoth, which didn't, you know, sell a lot of books, but was such a to me, an important and fun, big story. So every time I, I write another book, it has to be big. It has to be huge. And that makes it harder and harder to find the next story. Because you, know, you can't just write a great story. It also has to be something that you could sell in 22 countries and, and make a movie out of. That can be tricky. And you always wonder, okay, am I going to find that next story? I, I knew that
0: the 20, the Bringing Down the House book w- would be huge um, because the topic just seemed obvious. But when you started writing the book on Facebook, I remember, saying to you, Ben, this is so stupid. No one wants to read a book about a computer program. I thought it was the dumbest idea. And ended up. I mean, this was before Facebook was really big, at least to me. And
1: yeah. uh, it ended up being so huge. Yeah, I mean, that was a crazy moment, you know? It, and, and yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, how the, how the social network came about, it, it's, I, it was two in the morning. Uh, 21 was about to come out in theaters. And every college kid had read Bringing Down the House, you know, the story of the MIT kids. And so I was always getting pitches from people, just emails, random emails to my website. And an email came in from a Harvard senior. It said, my best friend founded Facebook and no one's ever heard of him. And this was 2007. So Facebook was not much, you know, people were on it, but it was not the monster it was today. And I'd heard of someone named Mark Zuckerberg, but I would never heard of anybody else. And I went to a bar and in walked Eduardo, you know, from the movie basically, and Proceeded to get drunk and 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 told me this incredibly crazy story. And you're right, you know, you weren't the only one. Mom also and other people were like, "Ah, so you know, maybe it'll be a good book, but I don't see this being being a movie." Yeah, and uh, it was so dumb of an idea. <laughs> yeah, it was Facebook. And at the time, Facebook wasn't even that big a company, and no one had heard of the Winklevi twins, and no one had heard of Eduardo or any of these other characters. Nobody knew anything about Mark Zuckerberg. You know, he was just like famous nerd, but that was pretty much it. But I wrote a book proposal, which was about 14 pages long, which I called Face Off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was a movie. But anyways, uh, basically my agent sent the book proposal out and that day it leaked onto the internet. So Gawker, the website, printed my whole uh, book proposal and everything went crazy. Facebook settled with Eduardo, who'd been giving me all this information um, for $5 billion, right? Which now he's worth about $14 billion. And he the settlement agreement on the top of it says you may never speak to Ben Mesrick again, because they were trying to stop this book from happening. So he cut off all contact with me. He sent me a legal restraining order that I was never allowed to speak to him again. He broke up with his girlfriend because it was my wife, Tanya's best friend. And then he moved to Singapore, um, never to be heard from again. And, uh, which you would too, Josh, for $5 billion. I think you'd never speak to me again too. I'd do it for like $500. <laughs> and, then, and then that same day, Aaron Sorkin saw my book proposal online and called and said, I want to write this as my next movie. And David Fincher saw it online and said, I want to direct this as my next movie. And this all happened in one day. And I actually hadn't written the book yet. Um, I had only had a book proposal at that point. So I locked myself in a hotel. I went to the Weston Hotel near my apartment. Um, and I wrote the book in about, I would say 12 weeks and Aaron Sorkin came to town and I was handing him pages as I wrote it. And the movie came together in less than a year. It was completely insane. Um, the movie was in production shooting when the book came out, which never, ever happens. And it just was life-changing and it was a life-changing crazy moment because even though I'd already had the movie 21, which was very successful, um, it wasn't like the social network. I mean, that was just a cultural moment. And you never expect something like that, especially at a book about Facebook, right? Never expected anything like that. And it was incredible. Led to the Oscars and everything that came after it.
0: So iconic. I, I watched it with my daughters recently and they were, yeah. their uncle wrote it. <laughs> yeah.
1: I know my kids haven't watched it yet because they're too young still. I've shown them like one or two scenes, but um, you know, it's, it's wild. And I think back on it now and I almost, it went by so fast, as you know, all these, your past goes by so fast. I don't even remember so many of the things that happened. I mean, I know Tanya and I were at the Oscars and then we ended up at an after party with um, Madonna's and Ashton Kutcher's after party. And it was like sitting there on a the couch and I was sitting between Nicole Kidman and, and Molly Ringwald. And I was holding the Oscar that Nine Inch Nails had won for doing the music for our movie. Oh my gosh. It was one of those moments where you're like, all right, this is nuts. I mean, you know, I was sitting at home in Boston and wrote a crazy book about a website. And now, you know, in the middle of of Hollywood, it was just one of those crazy moments. And, and, uh, although I I guess
0: I should mention to the listeners that that may be a great moment, but a lot of people don't know that Hugh Hefner was one of your huge fans.
1: Uh, Hugh Hefner was a fan and a fan and would invite us over. Um, and Kevin Spacey, don't forget Kevin Spacey. So there was, you know, some interesting characters. I remember
0: um, when I was a uh, resident, I think, uh, 21 or maybe bringing down the house was out and you actually invited me to a Halloween
1: party at the Playboy mansion and I couldn't go because I was on call. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, that was, kinda, that was kind of nuts. Yeah. That was a, that was an interesting time in my life. <laughs> I, have I have to tell you, but <laughs> yeah, sadly, well, you know, listen, it was a, it was a, a moment in history, right? And, uh, and now uh, now we can look back on it and you can regret it for the rest. Of- you can, regret it, regret it.
0: can I ask you, like, I don't know if you want to get into this, but since you are the, the expert on Facebook, what what happens in the future? Are they going to get broken up or is it going had had just- a
1: great question? You know, Facebook and, and I think there's going to end up being a sequel to the social network. Um, Eric Sorkin has, has expressed interest in doing it. And, uh, and what's happened with Facebook is incredible. I do think with that movie, we got Mark Zuckerberg exactly right. I mean, I do think that he is a, a brilliant but, but duplicitous individual who doesn't think about privacy and, and the power that he wields the same way that we do. And I think that what's happened with Facebook is that they don't want to be responsible for all of the negative things, or they're just now figuring out that they need to be responsible. But meanwhile, they want every human being to be on Facebook all the time. I think that Zuckerberg fears the company being broken up and he'll fight it tooth and nail. But I'm not sure how you can break up something like Facebook. And, And here's the way I look at it. If all of your friends and family weren't on Facebook, you wouldn't go on Facebook. So if you broke Facebook up and had multiple social networks, they don't work. One of them has to become a monopoly. I think the technology needs monopolies or they're useless. If everyone you know is not on Instagram, what's the point of Instagram? And so I think to some extent, these companies have to tend towards monopoly, uh, at least of their consumers, or else they don't work. You wouldn't do Facebook if you weren't, you know, sharing with all your friends on it. If some of your friends were on Facebook and some of your friends were on this, you would gravitate towards one or the other. Um, So I don't think you can break up Facebook. Um, and, And so I don't think that that's the answer. I think there needs to be more rules about what qualifies as news, for instance. Maybe there shouldn't be a news feed at all. Um, there needs to be sort of standard so you understand who's real and who's not real and things like that. But, um, but in the end, no, I don't think it'll get broken up.
0: Right. It seems like, and I think you've talked about this before, Facebook,
1: Twitter, they could at least make it such that people have to be real to have accounts. Yeah, I think that's what Facebook tries to do is that, you know, you have to be responsible for what you say on Facebook, which is very different than Twitter. I mean, Twitter brings out the worst in people. And I use Twitter all the time because I've, I've you know, I've met Brian Koppelman. I've done things that were important to my career on Twitter. But Twitter is a cesspool of horrible people with horrible ideas. Um, and even though there are some smart people on it, and there's a lot of scientists on it now because of COVID, right. you see scientists right. everywhere. And some of them are saying really important things that it's great that I can read. And I, I, as you know, I believe I'm an expert now. <laughs> but at the same time, there's no way to vet who you're listening to and what you're getting your information from. And that's a horrible, horrible thing for human society. I think that Twitter is awful, awful thing. But... I love it. <laughs> so, so you know, that's the way these things are. And I think social media on the whole works that way is that I love it and I use it and I think it's incredible, but I also can see it as a real evil and and there has to be ways to rein this in. So I do think people being responsible for what they write is an important part of all these things.
0: Yes. Here, let me run through a few kind of fun, quick things. So you wrote a pretty big book on UFOs and you have a TED Talk that has a few million views. So are UFOs real? Yeah,
1: UFOs, uh, let me put it this way. The, reason, the reasons why people did not believe in UFOs have fallen away over the years. And, and we used to think that there couldn't be UFOs because there couldn't be life on other planets. And now we're pretty certain there probably is life on other planets. We used to believe that this life on other planets would be way too far away because of the vastness of space. But now we know and we find every day more Earth-like planets that aren't that far away. And we used to think that it was technologically impossible for anyone to get from there to here or here to there in any normal amount of time. But now we know with the technology we're developing today that you could get a probe to the closest one of these Earth-like planets in under 30 years. So the reasons not to believe in UFOs, I think, have fallen away. Does that mean I believe in UFOs? Not necessarily, but I think that there are things that we don't necessarily understand And there's no reason why we shouldn't be researching it okay another
0: topic bitcoin you're an expert on bitcoin should uh should i put some money in bitcoin
1: great question and and uh and a couple weeks ago i i would have i wished i'd said yes (laughs) bitcoin is flying again i think bitcoin is here to stay i think that crypto is a big part of our future crypto um you know economies and things like that so yeah i don't think bitcoin is necessarily a bad thing the thing is that right now There's so many whales and so many sort of scams and so much going on with Bitcoin that it's very hard to know what's real and what's not. But I do think Bitcoin is here to stay. And I think people are going to make fortunes in it. Yes.
0: Okay. I wanted you to know, like, five years ago, I told our financial advisors to put all our money into Bitcoin and they freaked out. And I was
1: joking, really, but I think I'd be quite rich right now. if I. (laughs) You would be very rich. You're kidding. Bitcoin is at 13,000 or more. And, uh, and uh, it was, at, you know, when the Winklevi bought 200,000 Bitcoin, it was $7 a coin. Now they're, I mean, now they're billions. It's just so, the timing is so tricky, but the crazier the
0: world is, the better Bitcoin's going to do. That's
1: how I see it. Yeah. So the more chaos there is. And right now we're in such a chaotic period that Bitcoin is, is a phenomenal hedge against all that chaos. It's basically better than gold. It's gold 2.0, you know. two A few
0: more of these. So if you weren't going to, if you weren't a writer and including film, any, you know, writing
1: for anything, what would you be? Uh, I mean, I, I think I would be really lazy. I don't think there's any sort of other career that fits a person like me, <laughs> and you know me well. I think it would be very, very hard to imagine me as any other as at any real profession. I'm sure I would be in academia in some way. You know, I would I would be the, doing something like that. But but for me, writing was always sort of what I was going to be. And and if it wasn't books, I would have found my way to Hollywood or something like that. But books is always what I've wanted to do, and I hope to keep doing it. That's awesome. All right. What's your favorite medical show? Oh, wow. I mean, I loved ER, of course. ER was just incredible. Um, uh, MASH was an was a incredible show also. I went through all of Scrubs. Um, I, I think, I like you, I probably watched every medical show out there. Grey's Anatomy, I only really got through a couple seasons, although Ellen Pompeo is attached to uh, Tanya, my wife and I's children's series um, to try and develop it as a television show. Um, so I've watched a little bit of Ellen, of Ellen Pompeo.
0: You know what I want to tell you about Grey's Anatomy? I, I watched the first couple seasons, then I stopped watching it. But I've had the chance to watch it with my older daughter, Sam. And it's actually amazing. Like, A, there are all these really great female surgeons. And B, like, it's been really fun. It's gotten her really into surgery. And oh, that's great. she wants to be uh, Ellen Ellen Pompeo or Grey.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I always, you know, we were, there was a period in time where those shows were so huge, and now I think it's a little bit less. But uh, but I don't know. I I, I I'd like I, I would go back to Mash being probably the best of all the medical shows.
0: Yeah, I think so. I had another funny comment, which is. With ER, I remember I was complaining to you when Clooney was doing something, and I was like, "Oh, the Pete's guy would never be doing that." And you were like, "Do you really think someone wants to watch you like yelling at someone on a phone?" Or
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's you know when they try and uh, it's just the same thing we did with the social network because you never really wanted to have a scene where someone just sitting at a computer because there's <laughs> no, no way that's exciting or fun. Uh, but the Winkleby running around, you know, trying to trying to get Mark. It's it's a much more exciting way to tell that story. But yeah, I mean. Uh, you know, Michael Crichton to me was sort of my idol for so long. I wanted to be him, and so ER was was what came out of him, which was really, really incredible. And yeah. the same guy did ER and Jurassic Park, <laughs> because in some ways they're they're so different, but really deep down, it's this sort of using science to tell some massive story. It's it's great. It's awesome. I was going to ask you your favorite
0: writer. Would it be Crichton
1: or? I mean, I have a list, but I would say I want it to be a mix of Michael Crichton, Hunter S. Thompson. I mean, I think those were sort of my idols and, and then Brady Snellis and Jay McInerney. And you try to mix all those guys together and you kind of get bringing down the house <laughs> in a weird way. Um, but I read a lot of current writers, too. I mean, I have lots of favorites. Uh, Ernest Klein, who wrote Ready Player One, I think is awesome. Um I know you're partial to Michael Lewis and I think Michael Lewis is a genius, um, and, and, and brilliant. But every time I write a book and I, and I show it to you, Josh, you always say it's good, but it's no Michael Lewis. (laughs) I do love Michael Lewis. He is my second favorite writer. I say about Michael Lewis is I can't write a book. If I think Michael Lewis would write that book (laughs) because he would do such a phenomenal job. So we're in the same kind of genre, but very different wheelhouses. Um, but I had an opportunity to meet him and, uh, just a great, great guy and a really smart guy. And so, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, we would write things very differently, I think, but he's, uh, he's, he's incredibly talented. Yeah, no doubt. Do you like Hemingway? Is he someone you like reading? Yeah, I was obsessed with Hemingway. So I used to read The Sun Also Rises every month. And so, Beginning in college, I think for years, I would really start each month rereading The Sun Also Rises. And I think what I learned from Hemingway was very similar to what I learned from Michael Crichton, which was the, you can tell so much with the scarcity of language. I, I think he was able in a sentence to tell you everything you needed to know about a character or everything you needed to know about a setting. And for me, you'd always remember these weird little lines that he would put in there that were so descriptive and evocative, but use such little amount of language. And I think that, you know, that sort of trained me. And actually, when I first started writing, I would keep The Sun Also Rises and Jurassic Park on my desk, and I would leaf through pages in between my own writing, trying to train myself to write in those sentences. Mm.
0: I was thinking I I, I wouldn't say Hemingway is my favorite writer, but when uh, COVID started and they were try- you know considering reassigning us all to COVID units, I I remember feeling somewhat excited to get involved, and it felt very Hemingway esque to just want to be a part of this thing that was going on, you know?
1: Oh yeah. Like, I mean, the guy, the guy, you know, would dive right in and be brave and, and, and yeah, he had to be a part of it and see it and yeah, see it and feel it. And, 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 but it was very, it was a self-destructive streak too, you know, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a healthy sort of bravery. It was a very unhealthy bravery. And, and I'm scared of everything, you know, that I'm terrified of all things everywhere. And so, <laughs> you know, it's like uh, as a massive hypochondriac, I had been expecting this my, all my life. You know, for a decade, I'd been every morning Googling China and coronavirus. And that's not not a joke. I really and truly have for years because I'd been expecting this since 2003. Um, yeah. And uh, and uh, in some ways, I was always prepared for something like this. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm i not Hemingway, but something about his writing definitely sort of speaks to me. And that's,
0: that's what's funny about you is you may be, if not, you're not going to be the guy who's going to go and plant himself in... Afghanistan or something like that, but you're you have total confidence and are not afraid to put yourself out there, whether it be uh, on stage, in a podcast, in a book, you know, right. in a review.
1: So, like, it's interesting. I mean, yeah. So it's funny. I I won't take any real physical risks although I have in my writing, and it's it's crazy. While I'm in the research phase, I've done some things that are pretty dicey. You know, <laughs> uh, with yakuza gangsters in Japan with with a friend of yours, <laughs> or, um, you know. I've been around some really terrifying individuals in my life. I mean, I've seen guns up close and I've, I've run away from situations that, you know, would be terrifying to most people, but I'm really and truly scared of everything. So it's kind of, this weird thing where I have different hats that I can put on and I become a different person. I've never been afraid. And, and I think you kind of share this being on stage or being in front of an audience. I get a real high out of that. And I love speaking in front of crowds and I love sort of those aspects of this career. I really, really love and having my stuff out there. So that stuff has never been a problem for me, but, um, but what you do on a daily basis would be terrifying to me. I mean, the idea of not just being around people who are ill, which scares me, but being responsible. Um, is something that I, I think I choose writing in a way because I'm never moment-to-moment moment responsible for anything. Um, the idea that someone can die in front of you um, if you do something wrong, I could never handle that in a million years. But just having to figure out what's wrong with somebody and, and the, but there's so much weighing on that um, oh, I could never that. that I mean, that, I have massive respect for people in the sciences. In the COVID situation, you know, I, I've said this to you before, but it's incredible that people are, are willing to sort of dive in there to help people. Um, I love it. It's awesome. And it is so great that there are people like you and your listeners who are <laughs> surgeons and doctors, because if the world were just people like me, we would be in a lot worse shape. <laughs> We'd be, we have a lot of great stories to read, but if people got sick, they'd be on their own because it's it's terrifying and, and, uh, and so it's awesome. But yeah, medicine was never gonna be the right career for me.
0: Yeah, there are many people who can tell the COVID story better than me, but I do hope to do a future episode, ideally with you and Scott Stossel to talk about these types of things, anxiety, fear, you know, stepping up and doing these things. I think that would be a lot of fun. I also want to get a future episode where I talk about how to get published because I can't tell you how many people have asked me in my field how to get published, but I don't want to break into that today. It's too much. I just want to end with one one last question. Like, what advice do you give to people who are starting out, whether it be in a field like mine or a field like yours? Is there anything? Are you one of those people who says, just keep trying no matter what, follow your passions? Or do you have any kind of, Advice or sentiment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you should, if you if you decide that this is what you want to do, whatever it is that you want to do, and you really think that that's the right thing for you, you do have to have massive passion, massive delusional belief that you can succeed in it. But you should also give yourself a time limit, a realistic time limit. I think in the writing field, you know, you should say, okay, if, if I don't have actual progress in three years, I'm going to find another sort of backup situation um, because these are difficult fields which you don't have total control over um so i do think you need to have the passion for it but i also think you shouldn't be afraid to quit if something isn't working quitting is often the right thing to do um, so you really need to sort of really really know deep down this is what i want to do i think you have a huge advantage in life the earlier you know what it is you want to do and plenty of people do fantastic just not knowing till very late in life what they want to do and then, and then a lot of people but if you somehow do know what you want to do you suddenly have this advantage because all you have to do is figure out a way to get there. So yeah, you shouldn't give up. There are massive walls in front of you and you have to climb them. And everyone around you is going to be telling you you can't do it. Um, So you have to believe that you can. But you have to be realistic enough to say, if I don't have any advancement in a certain number of years, all right, I'm going to actually do something that makes a living. (laughs) Oh, and the other thing is, it really, really will help if what it is you're trying to do is something that other people want to pay for. Uh, so I talk to young people all the time and, and some people want to do poetry and some people want to do literature and I say that's fantastic and you should do it because it's important and you'll feel good and it'll be great but don't expect to make a living at it because it's not something that sells and so it's it's important if you want to be a writer as a career to write something people want to buy and that changes every year you know I can't tell you what 10 years from now people are going to want to buy but I can tell you if you're doing it for yourself that's great but if you want to do it for a living, you have to do it for other people. And those are two very different things.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting and important. I do think probably your biggest skill is you've always been good at one or two years in advance predicting what the next big thing is. Like that's been...
1: Well, that's a, that's a Michael Crichton trick. You know, how do you know what, what people are going to be interested in two years from now when a book comes out or a movie comes out? And it's very tricky. But the goal is if you find a story that's compelling enough and big enough and has all those elements that are, are a big movie, but you can also explain it in one sentence. It's likely to be popular. And so those are the things you need to look for. It has to be explainable in one sentence, really quick and easy and captivate lots and lots of people. And if you can do that, um, then you're going to (laughs) win. That's
0: incredible. Ben, this has been such an incredible, I could go on forever and I hope to have you periodically through the huge season that we're going to have. Yeah, Uh,
1: I want to come back as much as you want me to come back and, uh, and uh and i hope your listeners enjoyed it and and it's awesome i think this is a i think that this could you know be your your fallback from this medicine this thing. could be
0: it and next and when i interview michael lewis i'll have you come on and ask him how he got to be so successful no, yeah
1: i mean listen if you if you interview michael lewis then uh then uh, i'll be very excited for you you'll be interviewing <laughs> the second best writer in the world which is awesome yeah. <laughs> no no <Michael laughs> fantastic
0: no of course oh ben thank you so much this is great And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous, rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Meserich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Meserich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu where you can find links to grand rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library, for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisk.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at WISC Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome.